Hello. Mr. Yanka Porter, can you see me and hear me okay? Hey, sorry, I had some tech problems. <laughs> no worries, mate. Something about, something about you. <laughs> I was thinking about here. I was thinking about that actually this morning. I was like, what's going on with me trying to connect with Tyson? <laughs> yeah, well, maybe we just needed to um, stop thinking about it for a minute. Yeah. But, yeah. We'll just go, we'll go careful. There you go. That sounds like good advice. Welcome to Sentient Planet. Do you hear the call? Future survival of all life on this planet will be dependent on humans being able to perceive and be custodians of the patterns of creation again. So writes Tyson Yunker Porter in Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. Tyson's book is a wide-ranging invitation for humans to move beyond our social and environmental crises by cultivating respect for the sentient creation and natural law that is all around and inside us. It's a reflection of the dominant global system through the eyes of an Indigenous Australian, a self-described flawed human being from the Appalachian clan in Cape York, Queensland. Tyson is also a researcher and senior lecturer at Deakin University, Melbourne, and he's a poet and a traditional woodcarver. Tyson is careful to clarify that he speaks from Indigenous knowledge, not for it. It took two attempts over a couple of weeks for us two to connect over Zoom, but that was half the fun. Our intention with Sentient Planet is to create deep conversations about our kinship with animals and nature. Sometimes you have to be careful what you ask for. Here's my yarn with Tyson. Tyson, welcome and thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's good to see you. In May, it'll be a year since the release of Sand Talk, which is how so many people in the world have come to know you. Your thoughts in this book are very wide-ranging and beautifully provocative. I guess I want to try and pin you down on a couple of ideas that are of particular interest to this podcast. So would it... No, you'll pin me down. Well, I'm going to try. You're going to pin me down. Yeah, and, and you're the yana, so I'm probably not going to succeed with that. But <laughs> would it be okay to start by discussing... Um, humans as the Earth's custodial species, as you describe it in your book, because it seems to me mm. that if that's our role, we are failing dismally. Yeah, yeah, I, I think we're probably being poor custodians at the moment. But I, I, do, I, I keep trying to make this point that it's not humans. You know, we're not patterned that way. You know, all through the world, we, you see uh, oceans and... Um, you know, forests and things disrupted, systems disrupted. And then you see animals behaving in ways that are contrary to their patterning. You know, animals you know, start, I don't know, I, I, I remember seeing a um, documentary once where like two male cheetahs sort of abducted a female cheetah and just basically kept her as a slave. Now, 
to me that that's something that doesn't actually happen <laughs> you know because that's i mean if that was actually something patterned biologically into any species then um that species wouldn't last very long and certainly wouldn't last a million years or five million years that's for sure um not with that kind of thing going on but you can see this happening in disrupted systems where things start behaving strangely and in insane ways you see um i mean fruit bats especially you know if you i mean anybody can look at fruit fruit bats you know particularly on the east coast uh all the way up i mean from north to south you know most people would encounter a fruit bat or flocks of fruit bats and, and you can see them doing uh strange things and you know, that they have uh, viruses that they start doing things where they have rabies like symptoms and they acting like fast zombies or something that there's all kinds of stuff going on and i think human beings um in the same way and it's not human beings as a collective you know we didn't reach a consensus about oh we're going to do this to the planet you know um oh, we want this we, we had to be trained to think we wanted all of this stuff you know your grandmother did not want this stuff your grandmother probably kept every bloody jar she ever <laughs> she ever owned she did know, actually boxes. yeah yeah i mean that's it everybody's grandparents did because you just didn't throw things out you know I, you, if you got a bottle that was your bottle now you know right up until very recently and we had to be trained very care like very assiduously we had to be trained to be these wasteful things these consumptive things mm -hmm. you know this is not our nature we're not monkeys in suits, you know, we're not these primitive cavemen who just just wandering the savannah, satisfying all of our lusts. But some of us are. Well, I mean, I mean, I don't think so. These are systems that have been imposed over our species. You know, we have unique gifts that make us the custodial species of this world. And it's not in our patterning to destroy it. It's in our patterning to preserve it. I mean, the problem is that, um, that little disease of narcissism, you know, has infected a few people who've used it to gain, you know, incredibly ridiculous, vast amounts of power. And, you know, all the people in the world who are doing that would probably fit on a bus, you know, and that's, it's not us doing it. So the idea of, you know, humans are just bad for nature and we need to, you know, get off this planet and go somewhere else where we belong is like, um, it's not a good idea <laughs> you know so all, all of the people who are designing all the tech and that's i'd say most of them most of the ones i've met are transhumanists they really want to overcome these what they see as these primitive animal origins uh, of human beings that we're they're really frustrated with the idea that we're animals walking around and that we need to overcome that and escape somehow by either uploading ourselves to a skynet or you know leaving the planet entirely they want to be gone from the meat suit. They want to live forever. You know, there's some very disturbing stuff in the tech world around that. You know, so I spent a lot of time talking to those those people and you know, seeing what the hell's going on. <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely not human beings that are doing this. It's um, you know, it's it's just a handful of people who managed to um, you know, escape the pull of communities, you know, holding things together and holding that kind of behavior in check. And um, it just spun out of control.
Yeah, it sure has. And, and what you're saying reminds me of a personal conversation I remember having with my own father when he was still alive. And we would get into some of these discussions and uh, he would say to me, but Susie, you know, it's, it's, it's human nature to be violent. It's human nature to rape and pillage and all of these things. And, and I would say to him, but isn't it human nature to lay down your life for a brother or sister? Isn't it human nature to lay down your life potentially for an animal that you may feel a strong relationship with? So, you know, kind of which side of human nature are we to give into? But what I'm hearing from you is that really our primary nature is not what we are being led to believe. It's not, it's not how mm. we've been conditioned. Our primary mm. relationship is to be in a, a harmonious I guess, for want of a better word. Exactly. Well, look, a lot, a lot of the science in, in this is, is based on animal testing as well. And so they'll, they'll remove, you know, simians, apes, monkeys, etc., from their, from their habitats. And they'll lock them in a cage and then study their behavior. And then go, well, now we know what the natural behavior of that, that animal is. And this is primate behavior. And then they project that onto us. And they don't study us in our habitat either, you know, all of the humans. They study us in these horrendous cages they've built for us. Mm. You know, so an animal in a cage will go insane. And all of the studies that have been done of monkeys, apes, etc., in their natural environment, the, the findings from those studies have been completely the opposite of the caged studies. And it's the same with human beings. Look, most of our psychology, our uh, economic theory, everything else has been built, you know, all of our disciplines has been built on a foundation of studying a very particular kind of human being, what they call weird, you know, Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic. And that's that's 95% of all the testing that's built up this idea of what the human brain is and what the human animal does and how they behave. These are all people, you know, in cages um, and they run the same tests when, you know, in the mountains of Peru or something, and they get completely the opposite uh, data back from that. And there's a lot of really good research um, on that, particularly coming out in the last decade or so. So what happens when they get that opposite data? What do, what do they do with that? To ignore it, mostly, or they'll just put it out there as kind of a fun sort of thing, an addendum. Oh, by the way, you know, oh, yeah, humans are, you know, just like you said before, it's just as natural for a human to, you know, lay down his life for his brother than to kill somebody. So, you know, it's 50-50, good and evil. Mm, it's your choice. You know, all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. It's up to the individual, you see. It's up to the individual choice of the individual and you're accountable for your actions yourself and yeah. you know, put you in jail forever. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, everything ends up getting twisted around to the same kind of sick narrative, you know, even when data comes out that's contrary to that, it's sort of bent to fit the narrative or there's sort of selective bits focused on. And that's not an evil conspiracy. It's just, you know, uh, systems do what systems do. And this globalizing system, you know, is self-organizing mm -hmm. and dynamic and it protects itself in that way. And you know, all the components of it, including each of us as individuals, are kind of driven to react and respond, you know, in ways that are going to help the system to continue to thrive. Mm -hmm. um, it's got its own ecology now. Uh, 
this global financial system. Yeah, it, it will basically do battle with the natural systems of the planet until one of them wins. Yeah. Which, I mean, nature will win in the in end. In the end. Some rough times in the meantime. Of course we'll win. But I tell you, there are a lot of species that are going to be collateral damage in that, and we will certainly be one of them. Could we go back to, um, <laughs> that's a lot of a lot to take in, could we go back to the idea of a custodial species? And from an indigenous perspective, mm. can you help paint a picture of what that true relationship is we should or could or are having with our animal kin that maybe we're not we're not seeing well you know it's still happening everywhere but but like i said everything's a little bit sick you know there's dioxin in the breast milk of every single nursing mother on the planet you know we're, we're all not very well and um you know same with all the other mammals not particularly well um and i, I look we're we just we've been removed from our habitat and we've been removed from our ecological niche and that's where the custodial role is you know every every organism in the system has a role to play or several roles to play and you know ours is is to be uh, custodians you know over the systems we inhabit uh, is to occupy and understand the spirit of that place of that bioregion and to be reflected in that and um you know, for our cultural sort of uh, technologies and, and behaviours, you know, um, to develop through that place and to, you know, reflect that place in ways that uh, will keep everything in balance. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're just very, there isn't very much. I, I have a friend, I was talking to him, how he got into complexity theory was, um, was trying to save uh, the elephants in a region in Africa because they were being poached almost to extinction mm -hmm. and he succeeded you know they they really did a big campaign and they put years into it and so much money they raised to do it and they finally stopped the poachers and that meant um well the only result of that is that that herd of elephants survived but then immediately two other species in that region became extinct you know within a matter of months so very precarious like a rhinoceros and something mm -hmm. else uh, both got completely wiped out because the poachers had to move on to something else. So it was as a consequence of them saving the elephant, yeah. Yeah. So there's basically a, an economic system and a social system that's, um, you know, uh, marginalising people so much to the point that that's the only way they can survive is, is by destroying the last of those animals. It's the only way they can put food on the table and they, they have to do it. And survive themselves. Yeah, the only solutions we can have are systemic solutions uh, where we're looking at entire systems. And those are not made up of attitudes. It's not the attitudes of the people in the system that make the system. You know, these are um, sort of monolithic things that have perverse incentives built into them. They're built in from the ground up. It doesn't matter how good you are, how non-anti-racist you are, or how pro-animal, you know, uh, how, you know, um, non-human centric you are or anything else. It doesn't matter what your beautiful, lovely ideology and spirit is like. It doesn't matter a damn. You know, you're operating in that system. And it'll either kill you or you will bend to the perverse incentives and you'll, um, you know, do the evil. It's a bit of a bleak view, Tyson. Is it? Can you see a path out for us? 
Well, I, it's, I find a, a, I find a lot of people, it's weirdly people find a lot of hope in that. I think it's a lot bleaker when people think that we're like just irrevocably flawed and that deep down we have all these prejudices and, and destructive um, well, longings and patternings that, you know, make us just generally an evil species that doesn't belong here. I think that takes away people's hope. But when people can see that, no, this is something else, you know, this is a problem that's systemic and it's not of our making as a species. You know, it's a, um, you know, a mutation that's been thrown up by, you know, a few of our number who've been quite evil in, in setting things up that way. So what I'm, what I'm hearing is bending to the system or being defeated by the system. What about defeating the system? Well, um, you know, of course, that's pretty much what's occupied my mind for the last three decades or so, <laughs> almost to the exclusion of everything else. And uh, most of that three decades has been occupied with thinking of ways, you know, looking at the flows, you know, of supply chains and cities and thinking about where the bottlenecks are and where the weak points are and all that kind of thing, you know, and trying to strategize around that and how do you mobilize people to make that happen and and but then how do you make sure that you have enough of a transitional way of being for a transitional community that could move out of that? You know, because otherwise you end up with cataclysmic loss of life, uh, all that sort of thing. <laughs> and pretty much, you know, um, there is no way to just end it. It kind of has to play out. And I think um, uh, there's an increasing amount of analysts in the world today who, are, who would agree, like, you know, very high level thinkers. We're all agreeing that this system is in a state of collapse uh, right now. Absolute metacrisis. It's just a matter of is it collapsing faster than uh, the ecological system? And will the turning point of the ecological collapse, will that happen before the turning point of the collapse of the civilization? Since you wrote Sand Talk, great fires have ravaged the land in Australia. They've killed billions upon billions of animals. What do you think the message was of those fires? Are there patterns in there that we need to see? Yeah, and it's it's basically that, that none of these disasters are unrelated. And, you know, it's, there's a domino effect. So, you know, we needed to see that those fires were coming uh, the day that all the fish died in the Murray Darling. You know, those are not unrelated events. Uh, what happened to that river, you know, over the year or so before the fires, uh, that can contributed to, um, you know, elements of climate and everything else that, um, that produced those fires as well. Plus, you know, that was on a song line that went right down and so, and that finishes on Kangaroo Island on the Adelaide there. Mm. And so when that's happening, you, you think, okay, well, Kangaroo Island's going to burn in a year or so. You know, you can see these things coming and you have time to prepare for them. You know, there are signs that uh, are readable, like either through Indigenous knowledge in that way or just through, you know, um, you know basic science. I mean, if people are actually looking at that and then uh, doing some predictive modelling based on well, what happens when, a massive river system dries out like that. What are going to be the knock-on effects and where do we need to direct our attention? 
oh my goodness, we better be doing some clearing and burning in, in a few different places and we need to be preparing the human communities there to sort of uh, change the way of life in a, in a way that they can be mobile uh, quite quickly as well, but also that there are corridors whereby, um, you know, uh, animal populations are able to be mobile as well, you know, where they're not being trapped in these kind of islands of death of these little, you know, segments of forest that are kind of enclosed and, and blocked off from the rest of the system. You know, systems need to be able to exchange constantly energy and matter. You know, there's a really static vision of nature that came out of the, even out of the age of reason, um, you know, that there's this kind of, still this kind of Christian idea, even though it was sort of made secular, there was still this Christian idea that, that you know, where all the different species are right now, that's where they belong. In brackets, that's where God put them. You know, but things move, you know, populations are moving all the time. Energy, matter, information, species, everything is, is constantly being um, exchanged across different systems. And they need to be mobile in that way because changes happen. And a species doesn't get to, uh, you know, be around for millions of years, you know, with massive changes in the landscape, massive natural disasters happening all the time, every few centuries, even if it's a really stable system, mm -hmm. you know, you don't survive unless, um, you know, your population can move and adapt. And that's one of the central tenets of your book, right? That yeah. um, if you don't move with the land, the land will move you. Yeah. And as a species, that's our patterning. And so this sedentary, you know, ontology, this way of being that we have now that we're all forced into to be prisoners outside of our habitat. It's kind of destroying our ability to move over the landscape and care for it in the right ways and facilitate the movement of other things around the landscape. Hmm. In Australia, we often talk about country, which is a, a term you don't hear as much over here in the US. And, and we talk about country kind of as a synonym for our relationship with the land. How do we start to heal country in Australia after such devastation can the can the forests and animals really come back in this time well yeah i mean half the time if you just leave things be but not in terms of you know humans leaving things be but if um you know you, you shut down all of the systems that are extracting you know if there's any ever any sort of disruption to that then things sort of bounce back pretty quick the foundation of it anyway the problem is, though, that if you continue to keep the ecological niche that's supposed to be occupied by humans, if you keep that empty, then um, that place will fall apart anyway. And we're supposed to be there. You know, there's lots of die-off happening in very remote, wild places where humans just don't tread anymore. And no one can understand why that die-off is happening. Well, it's because all of that system has evolved, you know, to have us in it. And without us in it, you know, without us moving the shellfish, you know, from the coast up onto the ridge, without us peeing on the trees, <laughs> you know, without all the things that we bring and move around uh, within that landscape and, uh, you know, without the burning that we do, without the million things we do. There's a lot of focus on burning, cultural burning, but that's just one thing. There are so many other things that we do as human beings when we're in our habitat that all the habitats here have evolved to need. There's things that will not seed unless we're doing certain things there. 
It's things that just can't thrive. Things that won't get their phosphorus that they need, like whole systems that don't get their phosphorus unless we're moving, you know, uh, certain things like maybe from the ocean, you know, foods and stuff like that, you know, up there and then leaving them there. Yeah. Yeah. So now you're starting to get into a nice description of that custodial role, right? That so many of us have lost our connection to. Yeah. It's very complex and it's, it doesn't take long to get back into the pattern of it. And a lot of it is, um, it's supra rational. It can't be held in any single person's mind. You know, but these cultures develop and evolve and are so much smarter than we could ever be, you know, uh, collectively and over time, intergenerationally. You know, the, the extraordinary genius of, um, of most of the processes involved in custodial roles on country. They're just, they're things that you couldn't reverse engineer with your frontal lobes. They're things that you can barely grasp if you try to break it down to its components and figure out how that design occurs. You know, even through evolution, it's like, oh, my goodness. It's so complex. You know, it's almost godlike magic. Which is why you seem to emphasize the need for that respectful communication, connection, understanding that each one of us holds a particular piece of the puzzle because not, in, not one of us can possibly understand all of that complexity. That's it. And that's where yarning's important. You know, we do need to come together quite regularly and all the different knowledges and points of view need to come out in that story, you know, in that group. And there's kind of a, a big mind that's formed, a collective mind that's formed, you know, during a group yarn like that, that is um, so much more than the sum of its parts, you know, and you get a feeling for it. You can, there's a deep time context and there's, then there's a really broad ecological and cultural context all around that you're feeling thinking you know beyond what you could do just with your brain just with the crude brain you know and and this is where the magic is and this is where the genius is that gives us our custodial uh, capacity yeah uh, but it, it takes it does take a village <laughs> yeah so really we're not just custodians of our animal kin in the way we might have even heard about that in a biblical sense but as you describe we're custodians really of all creation which is a a much bigger concept that kind of blows our minds mm. well i mean we, without us doing that it, it's all just a big quantum soup you know truth truth can only ever be and reality even it, it, truth can only ever be a consensus on what is real you know and that consensus can only be built I don't know, you know how when they build holograms, they have to take like 2,000 photos from different angles of one object in order to 3D scan something. It's so many images from every possible angle. And so, and so you can't build that simulation of reality without so many different points of view on it. And which one is the truth? What would you be able to build from just taking one of those shots and going, well, that's the truth. That's the dominant narrative. We're going to put that on. Are you ever going to get us two dimension? You know, but in order to um, co-create this reality, this agreement about what the consensus of reality is, we need to be doing that work together. And that that's the fabric of, of this world that's held together through that. And it takes, um, like I said, it's not something you can just do with your brain. You have to do it with a very large collective mind 
and there are technologies for that we've developed over a million years like that is um you know ceremony ritual narrative you know um map image all these things these are part of how we we produce and transmit and store that knowledge you know over deep time without that you you've got nothing you've got no reality all it is is a bunch of electrons and stuff buzzing around <laughs> uh, in not even space i mean who knows what it is it's just a soup of chaos is the human species ascribed this role? Is it to bring a sense of reality, to make sense of it? I, I, why? What is unique about us? Ah, well, I, I don't think you get to learn the why until you get in your deeper stages of initiation and knowledge. You can't blame me for asking. You only learn the what and the how at, at my level. And, um, and if I knew the why, I probably wouldn't be allowed to tell you. Well, I probably could, but I have to kill you after. <laughs> <laughs> but the curious child in me has to ask the question. Well, you know, but it's like asking why about something where you don't even know why. Like, you know, it's like asking why do whales have a blowhole when you you don't know what a whale is yet. Like you have to know what a whale is first before you can ask that question. Yeah. Fair enough. Can you talk a little bit about the, the two great myths that stand in the way of us returning to a way of life that is more sustainable on planet Earth? Yeah, that's the, um, that's the myth of primitivism, and I think I've touched on that already. You know, and these are two sort of linked things in a, in a kind of a dichotomy or even a continuum, I guess. This myth of uh, primitivism versus the the myth of progress and they kind of just support each other there so the first one is the myth we were talking about before that human past was brutish simple horrible short-lived nasty you know disgusting simple simplistic all that sort of thing barbaric yeah. just hitting things with rocks and just dying all over the place you know yeah no language no thought Nothing like that. When, I mean, it's, it's not, I mean, we know, like, for even Cro-Magnon man who's regarded as, you know, ooga booga, they had a 10, 10% bigger brain than Homo sapiens. So it's, <laughs> there, are, there are a thousand things we could go into, but. I've been in cetacean brains today. I've been writing a script about the right. killer whales and, and their brains. I mean, they're just larger, more complex on every level, yeah. going back to your comment just a couple of minutes ago that you, yeah. we don't even know what a whale is. That's, yeah. that's the truth. We, we don't know. They probably know more about us than we know about them. Yeah, and, and even, you know, it's not just uh, and the idea that your mind is in your brain, you know, rather than your brain being a function of your mind. Yeah, I mean, your, bra your brain changes, you know, through the thoughts and the cultural things that happen. So, I mean, you learn to read... Uh, that literacy will literally re rewire your brain in some weird ways. You know, like, for example, the um, your facial recognition, the part of your brain that does facial recognition, that has to switch to the from the left to the right side of the brain. It's got to put it somewhere else because there's no room for it. You know what I mean? Hmm. So you're biologically, your brain is responding, you know, to the thoughts that you're having and to the knowledge that you're learning and the culture that you're learning. 
you know so the thought the idea that it originates you know in that brain <laughs> you know it's just is a bit sort of funny like a, yeah i mean especially coming from science where they know that correlation doesn't mean causation you know that's a, that's a pretty big assumption and the mind is more than that and you know it does extend it extends out into your uh, relationships you know with place and with all the entities in place other people you know your knowledge and your thinking your mind sits in the spaces in between uh, the things that you're connected to um, and that's all entities and all those entities in the system they do carry knowledge they carry information a rock what's to stop a rock from just collapsing into a pile of atoms how is it maintaining that shape and that substance and that molecular structure mm. you know that's information that's holding it together like that that's knowledge it contains knowledge and therefore we regard everything that contains knowledge and is part of a system where knowledge is flowing through the system all the time and holding everything together we would regard those things as sentient and of course that includes animals yeah yeah but a lot of i mean there are problematic ideas about you know uh, trying to show how animals are biologically sentient in the same way that we are and uh, all that sort of thing because this is you know based on the assumption that you know an entity can only have value if it's like us the more like you know <laughs> like us you are that you know it's like nobody ever wants to eat anything that um, was cute when it was a baby I mean, that, that being looks like vaguely the same as me, but I'll squash the hell out of that spider. I mean, <laughs> but, you know, all things, are, you know, have that sentience. I guess you, you'd call it an informational theory of, of, you know, tangible reality. It is information that makes all these compounds, you know, the compounds of a rock. So as that rock moves through its life, it gives those compounds you know, to a system and that's carried along with the mycelium throughout the entire system, you know, beneath the ground, it's carried, you know, and shared between trees with networks of roots and all those sorts of things. So there's, you know, phosphorus in those rocks. Mm -hmm. It is maintaining its informational integrity in order to stay together as that substance, in order to hold together as that, and it moves through that system. And then it transforms in there, but it doesn't disappear. You know, it's always recycled back around. You know, all matter, everything is, you know, continually in these closed loops. You know, the problem with this uh, system that's been tinkered over the top of everything is that it, it sort of makes open loops, you know, so that entropy is not recycled back within systems, but then across and between systems as well. And um, so what happens, I mean, it will be eventually because time takes care of that. But, I mean, you know, we haven't got uh, 100,000 years to wait for that. Mm -hmm. You know, that's um, all that entropic stuff and all that toxin is, is being sort of, you know, um, just directed into these static heaps. Things are um, extracted and, and, and things are sort of, you know, stockpiled all around the place. And, you know, but that kind of violence is usually detonated away from these um, technological peaceful living spaces that's created for weird people you know weird populations that stuff's sort of outsourced all that entropy is outsourced to people and animals and systems that are regarded as being um less human less less valuable less deserving of continuation and i think what i hear you saying and what i understand as well as i can in your book is that 
that information that you're talking about that exists everywhere and within everything is something that we humans have the ability, of, although we have seem to have forgotten a lot of us, to somehow key into mm. and interpret and do something with that is that's it is effective and is part of our our role. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have um, you know traditionally all human beings have um, you know increased ceremonies that we do you know regularly and cyclically through throughout the year. You know. There are increased ceremonies that are done, and that's the sort of the ritual technology um, that's used to to form that sort of consensus mind and that consensus view of reality, where we know what we need to do on the country, and and through those ceremonies we're sort of mapping the blueprint of, you know, all the combinatorials that can be form this increase you know, where you're connecting different parts of the system and putting more and more things in, rel in relation. You know, there's infinite um, infinite capacity for increase within a system in terms of the different combinations and relationships you can have between all the elements in that system. And th that needs to be maintained, but also increased. So that's why we have those increased ceremonies as human beings. And we just, uh, we just do that. And there's a difference between that and growth because with increase, you're not growing the size of the system. You're just growing the um, complexity of the system. So Tyson, what happens to creation if, like you said at the top of this discussion, human beings are no more and we go extinct like so many? What goes on? What happens next? Well, there is an inter there's a really handy theory. Uh, it's sort of come out of uh, evolutionary theory. It's the idea that there's these evolutionary stacks and it's great because it's not like a food chain thing where it's like this dog eats dog kind of <laughs> sort of brutish red of tooth and claw picture. But the idea of an evolutionary stack, I, I think, is kind of handy um, to think of because you could kill all the cows uh, in the world. But if there's still grass, then something like a cow will emerge you know, to do the work that needs to be done with that grass. If you kill all the grass in the world, it's, it's, it's trickier. However, there are still, there's still rhizomatic stuff beneath the soil that will end up reproducing something grass-like, something to fill that niche. So if you imagine that as a stack, you know, an evolutionary stack, the higher you go on the stack, you can do damage. But if you destroy the mycorrhiza beneath the soil in a place, then that's finished. That's creation done in that place. No coming back. Yeah. So I guess there's that idea. And, you know, I keep trying to do these big mind, you know, collective consensus sort of calculations uh, with people all the time, um, trying to figure out how that race is going, how far down the stack will we go and how much of the stack will be destroyed from the top down uh, before this... Um, civilizing system is done so it is a literally a race to the bottom mm -hmm. but hopefully we get there first and there's rise micro riser still there and then it gets to build back up so in the same way after humans are gone something else will come up you know so there's a story i reference in the book from noel nana uh, in um, western australia it's talking about that uh that sort of dreaming story of the crew uh, care is for everything 
And it's like right back at the dawn of time, like just before everything real became real, all the, the spirits of everything, all the different animals, birds, plants, people, everything, you know, um, sort of came together in a big meeting to decide who was going to take the, on that role. And so they gradually, you know, went through and, you know, it's like trees, for example, I had to say, oh, we're going to have to step back. When we become real, we're not going to be able to move around as much or fast enough to make things happen, but but we'll do. Aware of their limitations. Yeah, we will be working for you to help you in this role. Whoever you know gets this role of the custodians of creation will be doing that. And we'll give you all the things you need uh, from us, but just don't use us until there's nothing left. So one by one, every species stood up and made that pledge until it came down to just a few. So it's humans and man and woman, emu, kangaroo, echidna, and uh, the goanna. You know, there are a few of these. Uh, I can't tell this story because I don't own the story, you know, but I can reference it. <laughs> In the end, they, they all step back, except the emu who was like, you know, he really wanted to be the boss and he's running around kicking up dust everywhere and guiding up on how fast he can run. Look, I can run everywhere. I'm, I got to be the boss of everything. And, you know, but he was crazy. What they call Kartwara over there. And yeah, it was that narcissism. So that story, Uncle Noel, he shows you in the night sky with the southern cross is the kangaroo's head. And then he traces through the stars and you see that body emerge. But then there's all these other animals around, even with the big, uh, what they call Wuggle, the rainbow snake, is wrapped around his legs. And the echidna is holding it <laughs> in its place. And, <laughs> Um, the, the kangaroo, yeah, in that season, it's holding the emu in the Milky Way and the serpent wrapped around his legs and the echidna holding him from behind. It's like everybody uh, having to work together to contain that narcissism. That's pretty much what human communities are supposed to do. It's what all communities are supposed to do when the defectors emerge. You know, the community needs to make sure that's taken care of and that that person is put back on the right track again done so in a way that transforms and uplifts everybody and that's sort of part of creation too because you kind of need that happening because that's what that's where your mutations happen that's where uh, the patterns are broken and completely you know constantly moving and being remade and that's what prevents everything from falling apart so in a way the narcissism is an important part of the system but if it gets out of balance like it is now uh, we're all stuffed yeah and it, it's insane right now you try talking to anybody look I've said five things in here so far that people would kill me for. And there's just this outrage. I mean, just multiplied exponentially. And that, that narcissism that you're describing is so dominant. Yeah. in the world and I don't see any community containment of it just these kind of feeble attempts but not anything that's really making any difference it's just running rampant yeah you can't do it but then even those you know when those good things do emerge initially how how deadly was call out was you know the idea of calling people out you know um exposing mm -hmm. you know horrendous things that that, that people were doing that was a collective community action, but then eventually even that became uh, dangerous, cancerous. Yeah, well, it, it ended up becoming 
you know, just taken over to the point where it's, it's an end within itself. So, you know, like even when someone's called out, it's like they, they don't end up getting what they need. They're not being transformed. The community's not reaching a better understanding. That person's not having to, you know, resolve any of the issues. It's just um, exclusion and then on to the next thing. And so that person... Stays in their sickness. Yeah. And it's um, so it's not actually dealing with the narcissism in the end. It's just feeding it and uh, it's sort of recursively coming in on itself and uh, eating itself, which is really annoying because it was very good. You know, when I see that happening, I just I almost feel pity for the narcissist because they're not having anything come in and help with the correction and healing. So they're just staying in there, staying in there crazy. Yeah, and I feel sorry for everybody because everybody's everybody's not recognizing that we all have that inside of us and we're all ourselves from time to time, like all of us, and we all need pulling in, you know, and it does need to be harsh and swift and collective and um, but ultimately supportive and, you know, bringing somebody back into being human again when they stray from that for a moment, which we all do. You know, and that's um, that's what's missing from the justice system. You know, that's kind of been uh, laid right across most of the globe. Like, I don't think there is any country in the world or any place in the world that doesn't uh, have some kind of weird, at least a mimicry of this um, weird justice system, this weird punitive lock him up forever a criminal. Lock him up and make money out of him now. Yeah, well, that's what that's what liberalism is. It's this blanket over the entire planet, and all the institutions are very similar. And if if you don't have those institutions, then you don't get to have a country, which is an institution in itself. You know, nations are the concept of a nation is only about you know, just over a hundred years old, and you know, if you don't have a nation, then you don't get to exist. Your your land will be taken, and somebody else will become part of someone else's nation. Mm-hmm. So you have to have that and you have to have all those institutions and they have to be perpetuating that same system of perverse incentives I was talking about earlier. So, I mean, you think about it, like what would it take to end that? And there really is no individual action or even collective action that could end that because liberalism will take anything that we collectively throw at it and turn it around. Yeah, morph into something else, like a slippery eel. Yeah, exactly. Well, you look at... Um, you look at women's women's liberation you know the most powerful and effective movement you know on the planet how did the system respond to that yeah i mean the system embraced it and then massive backlash well made women into wage slaves instead mm-hmm. and um and sort of used that to sort of you know ratchet and ratchet and ratchet the um diminishing sort of value you know of currencies and of labor and of everything else, and then ratchet up, up, up the the cost of living and everything else until it's um, you know, it's so difficult for this generation now emerging to survive in any way. It's it's almost impossible, and that's off the back of liberalism just completely perverting, you know, everything that came out of that cause of women's liberation, and um, sort of twisting that into equality, you know, enslaving women alongside men in the same way, while most of them still have to carry on all of the labor from their previous ens- enslavement system of all the unpaid 
work that women have to do just by being a woman. Well, and just the only way to survive these days, like you said, is to be really in the system. If you're at the margins of the system, or God forbid, trying to be outside the system, how are you to earn the capital to put food on the table? Yeah, that's it. So, you know, like I said, it's a big system of perverse incentives and it's not just a matter of, oh, you know, well, there's nice things to have if I comply. It's not just that because those things I think most people would give up in a heartbeat to be able to go and spear dugong and eat turtle and bloody live a life on the land of, of just absolute luxury. Yeah, most people would give it all up in a heartbeat. They're bacon and their diet coke and everything else. Yeah. So it's not just that, it's the threat that's over your head all the time. There is no habitat left for you to return to. Mm. And that habitat is no longer land, that is capital. And each part of that piece of that capital is an enclosure that is owned by something and that props up the global financial system that was invented by the Dutch a few hundred years ago. So you don't get to have that habitat or even go on it. That's private property now. There's dogs there and people with guns, you get arrested. So you don't get to have that. So basically, you, you, you have no choice if you don't do this in these enclosures we've created for you and keep working yourself to death, then you will die. You will be killed. If you try to escape it, uh, go out and, and you know reclaim your place on the land, um, you will be destroyed. I mean, they tried that in Bolivia. You know, everybody, it was millions, and they just walked straight out of the cities and the villages and the towns, and they reclaimed all the land, the vast estates of the handful of rich bastards who was holding most of that country, most of the land just as capital, and they walked back onto the land. They're not there still now. <laughs> yeah. These things are dealt with really quickly if people want to have their own sovereignty and not come under that system they're dealt with very very swiftly and it's not nice it's not nice at all no so there's that threat that's over you all the time well there's particularly indigenous people around the world who are on the front lines of those types of attacks mm. from the system because it's often those indigenous folks who still have a stronger connection to land and that sense of responsibility and custodianship and who stand up to the system and say, yeah. no, stop, you know, like what you've seen in so many places around the world. So they're the, the first mm. folks to get mowed down. Yeah, that's it. And, and not to mention our poor animal kin, right, just getting back to, to that topic. I mean, if it's hard for us in these enclosures, imagine if we can how more confined they are and, how, and, and so completely yeah. innocent to the picture as well. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a hard thing to it's a hard thing to bear. Yeah, well, I mean, every soybean you eat is dead possum. Ah, oh, just the the horrendous methods of production that make everything. It's it's not possible to exist in this system, and at the mercy of these supply chains, uh, without killing millions. Each person just killing millions and millions of animals in their lifetime. You can be the biggest vegan in the world. You can have bloody can have a net over your toilet so insects don't drown in it you're still going to slay millions with every every piece of corn you have every bloody asparagus spear every bit of spinach it's murder and yeah taken from the wildlife and taken from the animals that inhabited the land mm. but it's also just that production itself like it actually murders animals 
as they're moving through that system, trying to find somewhere to land, trying to find something to eat, trying to find somewhere to drink, trying to migrate because things migrate. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just carnage. Yeah. Not to mention what's under the soil. All of this production just murders soil, a million organisms in a teaspoon of, of healthy soil. And that's, that's just a big dead sponge now to spray um, our fertilizer on that's, that's made from all well, the feedstock as fossil fuels. So, on that cheery note. <laughs> there's no um, phosphorus left. <laughs> there's no more phosphorus reserves. They haven't found any more new sources of phosphorus, like phosphorus mines, for a very long time. Wow. I mean, a very long time. And nothing can grow without that. But most of the phosphorus on the planet is now at the bottom of the ocean. So what the hell are the plants going to grow from? Right. Yeah. So there's, there's, your, there's your connection to human extinction right there. Yeah. And but there <laughs> are, there are I, I, I've lost count of how many of them there are. How many of those things that are um, absolute existential horrors immediately. Yeah. I mean, hmm. Yeah, pick one, right? Yeah, that's it. Pick one and link it back to us. Yep. Every, everything's so inextricably linked. Yeah, that's it. Well, thanks very much for your time. I can hear your, uh, your kids in the background again. Yeah, yeah, they just come back. <laughs> so uh, there's nice things too, though, you know, and there's lots of laughs to be had. Yeah, well, I'm probably not the best person for drawing that out because, you know, working in this topic, you know, it's... It's hard to see the light sometimes, right? Yeah. I mean, it's so much bigger than, than all of us. We just have to be, just be in the mix. And most of all, we have to make the stories. And a lot of the important stories going forward that we're going to need to hand down across at least 10 generations now is going to be um, cautionary tales. And we need to make those. We need to make sure we get a good consensus reality about what happened here. Mm-hmm. So if we survive ourselves, it doesn't happen again. Well, it's not even so it doesn't happen again, but just so it can hold creation together. I mean, we have to have a good consensus truth of of what the reality is here and and what the stories are behind it. And there'll be many different stories. And, you know, there's an aggregate of that, which will approximate the truth and approximate reality. We need to make sure we're doing that work and we're doing it orally and visually, you know, not just in print. Because print will not survive uh, the next couple of centuries at all. Print's not what's going to last. That'll all be gone. But um, but stories, story that we pass down will. And this is, uh, you know, a source of tremendous hope for me. Tyson, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, really good to meet you. All right. See ya. more about our guest, Tyson Yunkaporta, and his paradigm-shifting views, pick up his book, Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World, published in 2020 by Harper One. Sentient Planet is brought to you by co-creators Susan Woodward and Tiffany Owens. Social media by Bridget MacArthur. Art direction by Janet Grimwade. Original cover art by Vonda Whitley. Photograph by Mark Stoop. 
Intro music, The Spaces Between by Scott Buckley. Interstitial music, Rendezvous with Rama by Stellar Drone. Sentient Planet is produced in the Krusty Palace studio from an undisclosed location on the traditional homeland of the Nisqually tribe in the Great Pacific Northwest. Be sure to visit us at sentientplanetpodcast.com and join our pod. Also on social media at Sentient Planet Podcast and Patreon at patreon.com slash sentientplanet. Thanks for listening and love to all beings, great and small.